my goodness, we've got guests. You know what that means. It's another Masterclass episode on Studio Class. What a great day. My friend and colleague, Jillian Flexner, is here to talk to us for our Masterclass episode today. And I wanted to take a few moments to tell you about Jillian before we jump into the interview. So Jillian Flexner is a composer, new music activist, and a bassoonist, all, all sorts of things. She's originally from North Carolina. She lives in New York City now. She is the co-founder of Fresh Squeezed Opera, which is a group that's dedicated to presenting new operas, you know, one of my favorite, favorite things in the world. And she also does development work with the Rubin Museum. She does development work in a lot of different capacities. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring her on today. You'll hear us talk about her work, not only as a co-founder of an opera company, but also in her development work and giving some thoughts about, you know, money mindset for artists. And yeah, I don't want to delay it anymore. I just want us to get into this. So this is my friend, uh, Jillian Flexner, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, now we're recording. <laughs> so Jillian Flexner, welcome to Studio Class. I am so thrilled that you are here. And I'm really hoping that we can kick this off with just you telling me, telling the listeners a little bit about you, about, you know, Fresh Squeeze Opera, like that kind of stuff. So take it away. Um, so I am a professional, a development professional. Uh, specifically specializing in grant writing and major donor uh, work. Um, I founded Fresh Squeeze Opera in 2014, and we only do new music, and we work with emerging artists and um, specifically singers who are new to their careers and designers and directors who came from a different field and want to jump in and try it out. Um, I have a really, really bizarre path to where I <laughs> came to. I have an MBA and I was a financial accountant for a bit um, way back when, before I was in college. Well, when I was in college, I was a chemistry major and wanted to be pre-med. And then I moved back to music and I'm a bassoonist and a composer and yeah, <laughs> very a very important part of being a in the music industry especially classical music is understanding that everyone is very multifaceted mm -hmm. and we need to embrace that we oh, have, I love that yeah we need to stop hiding our day jobs and saying yeah I'm also a teacher I'm also <laughs> you know I'm also a professional fundraiser whatever you do and then I also sing or I also write music and that's cool and that's just part of being a human being in 2021. Exactly. I <laughs> couldn't agree more. And I love what you said about don't hide your day job, you know, because so many of us work in lots of different areas. And I think that you would agree with me that lots of musicians and composers, you know, performers, that we have a lot of skills, you know, a lot of us get into all sorts of different things. And so ain't no shame in how you make your money. Like just go, just like make sure that you're living your best life. So I think that I, I really think that we should keep highlighting all of those facets of ourselves. So Definitely. thank you so much for saying that, you know, right, right away. Cause we all have these various sides, you know? <laughs> I mean, if you want me to really dig in, 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> Always. <laughs> um, there's a real problem in the classical music world with this type of concept because people go to these very expensive and high caliber conservatories mm -hmm. and they get their master's degrees at these places also and they build a strong network of of peers and professionals and then it seems almost shameful that you'd have to have another job right right and I find this in the composition world all the time where it's like oh right. where did you get your master's well, I don't have a master's in composition that doesn't make me any less of a composer exactly Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Are you composing music? <gasps> You're a composer. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I, I feel like there are people in the industry who, who are gatekeepers and, mm -hmm. and this stigma, you know, loud and proud, which is very problematic. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really ingrained in the academic world. Mm -hmm. um, well, and I think that's a part of where it comes from. Don't you think that, that, when you get into some of that hierarchical thinking, you get kind of the, well, you can be a professor in music or you can be 100% the uh, label composer, singer, you know, whatever it is, nothing else, nothing else counts. Right. And I'm like, that's, that's, yeah, no, it's very dumb. bonkers. <laughs> it's very dumb. And it's, it's detrimental. And it's also like, you know, think of the type of people who have the privilege to be able to to compose full time and what kind of exactly. backgrounds they might have and how it might be not very accessible mm -hmm. to people mm -hmm. of different types of backgrounds. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I don't, you can, you can cut this out, but I I'm had, not going to cut it out. <laughs> I had a conversation with a librettist a couple years ago. So the librettist I work with is my very good friend, Orlando Segura, and he um, is a radio play author playwright and cool. he ha he comes from the acting world he is a very really really great at creating narratives and characters and like really driving a plot forward in a way that I could I mean I consider myself a good writer but I, not like that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he you know he has a I think he has a master's in acting and like you know he works at a dental office right now like yeah, I mean whatever you do your yeah. craft however you can yep uh -huh. I was talking to this other librettist and I was telling I got so excited because she was really into this idea of um like let's make libretto writing more inclusive like yeah yeah totally. so I started <laughs> telling her about Orlando and she was like oh no 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 I mean real librettist I'm like what <gasps> does that even mean <laughs> I went to Oxford to study <gasps> libretto writing yeah good on you but not everyone <laughs> can do that Wow. Wow. Yeah. See, and I think, okay, so that we tell those stories between each other all the time. And I think what I really want us to take away from that, or the thing that I keep coming back to is Megan, be, be aware of your language. So if you're responding to somebody, are you living your values when you're saying who gets to be part of whatever you think your group is, you know, whatever you d identify as in our musical lives, you know, are, are you unwittingly gatekeeping, you know, by saying, oh, oh, real librettists, oh, real mezzos, oh, real new music singers, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, be, I'm trying to constantly be aware of just how that might be coming across. If I'm saying something, check myself first, 
and then realize that we all have that work to do to make sure that people feel welcomed. You know, it's, we're, we're all music making people and we, you know, we, and resources are too scarce usually for us to just be like, no, you're not allowed to come play in the sandbox. Like, you know, I know. Like, it's, I got- it's, and I, and I kind of get like, I understand if you spend a lot of money mm-hmm. trying to prove, trying to create credentials for yourself. Yeah. Like I get it. You're a little, you might be a little bitter. I don't know if that's accurate, <laughs> but I mean, no people, some of there's, I always forget the name. There's a fair every year in New York um, that features artists by art by artists who are um, not educated in art. Sure. Sure. And a lot of them are by people who are uneducated, like, dropped out of high school or were mm-hmm. incarcerated and it's gosh I wish I knew the name of the fair but the art is stunning and so different mm-hmm. because they were never like inducted into a certain aesthetic right 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 when I was living in Baltimore we have the visionary art museum there which is what they call that <gasps> I love mm-hmm. that museum right if, you it, know it, right it's so great <laughs> but same yeah. thing it's all you know uh like non- conservatory or or higher education trained you know artists and so that's their whole mission and it's like they just make you feel so alive in that space it's a great museum it's a wild yeah. museum yeah <laughs> super baltimore <laughs> but <laughs> jillian one of the things that we talk about you know when i kick things off on each of these masterclass episodes i always ask my guests what's an intention that you're keeping for yourself right now? And this mainly, I mean, kind of in your musical life, but if this is also, you know, something that's on, on your heart to talk about personally, feel free. It's really wherever you want to take that, but what's an intention that you're keeping for yourself right now? Um, so I started therapy very fairly recently. Great. Um, Right. Yeah. That's great. (laughs) So I, I'm doing things that will make me happy and I am, Um, which sounds like, oh, that's obvious, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm thinking about, um, like if I eat this bag of chips, Mm -hmm. is that going to make me happy Mm -hmm. now? Is that going to make me happy in the future? And if the answer is yes, then cool. Eat the bag of chips. If the answer is no, like that's going to make me sick, Mm -hmm. then don't eat the bag of chips or like. If I need, like, will taking a walk make me happy right now? No, I'm feeling a little grumpy and lazy. Mm-hmm. Or like, yeah, getting some fresh air will be great. Yeah. You know, like not putting any values on any, any one choices or activities, but I've been really trying to live that and like understand what makes me happy and makes me tick and motivated. Um, something that doesn't make me happy that I have to do. And I don't know. This is like immediately. Um, I had an April first deadline to finish my piano vocal scores for my opera, <laughs> and it's it's like it's like seven eighths done. Yeah, yeah, it's so close. It's so close. <laughs> but you're right in that crunch time when everything is like coming to you know. It's like oh, I gotta I gotta finish this. I gotta turn it in or whatever, and you know, crunch time just, I don't know, crunch time makes anybody happy. (laughs) And it's also, it's um, like engraving and piano vocal scoring. So like the music, Mm -hmm. the fun stuff is already done. It's just right. Editing and making sure like the singers can read the music. (laughs) Yeah. Julie, do you have any thoughts, you know, for, 
for performers or composers about getting to know your time frame for either creating on the composition side or like learning a score on on the performer side you know i think that's such an important skill to have which is what is my timeline for a big project so whether it's the the creation you know thinking of the thinking of all the parts and then also engraving and all of the that fun stuff i guess but also if you are on the side where you're learning a new score, you know, how breaking it down so that you know what, like how long your process takes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I've been working on the opera I've currently been working on since 2015. Yeah. So it's, I'm, so I, because I also have a full-time job and, um, you know, I like doing things like playing video games and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Like being a real person. (laughs) Um, I write very slowly and my process is very slow and I can, I have the ability to do that because I create for myself mm-hmm. and I know not a lot of people have that um, privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not, I have been commissioned to do things with deadlines and stuff, but for this particular project, it was just me wanting to do it. Yeah. Um, so I, and then generally it takes me a long time to write music. Um, and really like understand what kind of sonic world I want to live in for it and uh, stuff like that but especially working with so I could talk a little bit about the opera Um, so it started I watched this video about of this guy in Hong Kong just like a YouTube video who created this doll this like robot that looked like Scarlett Johansson and he programmed it he kept saying over the course of the interview like oh, well, you know, it's for science. Think of all the great things we can do with this robot. But, like, it had breasts, and, like, he programmed it to, like, giggle when he said, you look beautiful and stuff like that, which <laughs> is not for science. <laughs> and it really, which is not for science. <laughs> the video really skeeved me out, and it was, like, the literal objectification of women. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, what if this robot came to life and saw this guy and was like, hey, you know, I don't, really like you because I think you're weird and creepy um for making me the way I am right that was kind of the impetus for the for the opera and what a fascinating story (laughs) yeah Yeah. I partnered with Orlando um and he so my story was like robot comes to life and rejects him and he's sad and she's awesome (laughs) no no no. (laughs) let's let's uh let's make this a little nuanced and like he really, you know, he fills the characters out and made, you know, Pete, the, the male character. So it's kind of based on Pygmalion and Pete is, um, a reference to that. And he names the robot gal, which is a reference to Galatea. Yeah. And like, really we added a character to help, you know, flesh the relationships out. And also an opera with two people is, is kind of tragic because (laughs) a huge, Part of opera is, you know, vocalists singing together. Right, right. <laughs> you want, you know, a couple, like, you know, three voices is, is, all, is better than two, I guess, when it comes to being a fully, sta- like a full opera. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, the process has been very long. I also just want to quickly touch on, because I have like a producer's hat too. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for singers to know, like, that kind of process. Yeah. Um, we start 
so fresh one unique thing about fresh breeze opera is we plan all of our um projects and programs are based on calls for scores open yeah. calls for scores which anybody this is kind of a you know i obviously have like a thing about um gatekeeping and yeah. i'm a lot of companies choose to invite composers to write something or be in their programs, but you have to like be in their network to be able, you know, you have to mm-hmm. be known yep. to be able to be invited to things. And that really peeved me um, because it, it prevents a lot of composers from, from getting their vo- voices heard. So we've yeah. always done open calls for scores for our main stage performances and for our showcases that we do every year. And um, so we do the call and then we really plan like two years in advance because that's how long it takes to build a creative team, to build a production, you know, do a staging workshop, um, you know, cast all the singers. And two years is pretty quick for most companies. They're at least four years out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I don't know. I think that it's, a lot of people don't know, like you have to start fundraising like at least two years in advance. And um, we are commissioning like from the ground up our first opera, um, which is going to premiere in 2025. And we've already been planning for two years for it. Wow. Wow. That's so great. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, and I think that's, that's important for us to talk about because especially in opera, there are so many moving parts mm-hmm. and even when there's not a, a huge team to do it that makes it even more like you you have to kind of think about all of the puzzle pieces that go together to get to the performance you know and then what happens after that but what I what I really love about what you said just now and what is so incredibly important to remember is that we're talking about aspects of you know, fundraising and development so that we can, you know, pay people to do the work that needs to happen for this. We are talking about technical workers that need to bring, like that you're bringing in. You're talking about artistic team. You're talking about administrative team. And in Fresh Squeeze Opera, you're wearing a bunch of those hats. <laughs> and and uh, a bunch of companies, I think that you and I both know, often when they're, when they're like a smaller team, you know, all of those people in the team are wearing many, many different types of hats. And then there are larger companies where they can start to, people can have a little bit more of their own like singular domain within the company because it's larger. Mm -hmm. But can you talk a little bit about what that means to you to wear so many hats in the size of Fresh Squeeze Opera? Yeah. So up until like three or four years ago, I was really doing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not directing, not conducting inter- and not writing all the operas or anything like that. But <laughs> I was, I was fundraising. I was doing the casting. I was, um, you know, setting up the schedules and, you know, figuring out, you know, getting the, a design team together or just designing things myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that we recently, or not recently, a couple of years ago, we did a lot of board development and really mm-hmm. brought on some fantastic people to our board who I've been able to relinquish a lot of responsibilities to them. They've been really like holding their own. And I, and it's, there's something very special 
about creating something that people like legit believe in and will work with you on it's it's very weird and it's really special yeah um and uh so yeah we I so right now I do it depends on the project like Mm-hmm. For my workshop, so we're workshopping the opera in June, and I've been doing a lot of the scheduling just because I've been paranoid about it. Like, <laughs> let's just get let's just get the details there. Yeah. But I really didn't have to. Like, we have people who would who would do that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't I don't really do that anymore. I really do all of the fundraising and the mm-hmm. board governance stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have a hand in casting. But I mean, you know, we do open auditions and I, I mean, I am probably the least qualified person to do casting. No. <laughs> um, and I'll also like help develop a creative creative team if yeah. they need, if like we hire a director and they need a reference for someone. Yeah, but yeah. I'm really like, you know, I'm really glad to to be able to just do the fundraising and um we vote on all programming as a board and I like help direct them to the pieces and stuff, but yeah. Um, if that makes any sense. Definitely. <laughs> well, Jillian, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about, I love to ask, you know, what's a, what's a technical skill that you like to teach. And this can be, you know, in the context of if, like on the vocalist side, this could be like a, a technique thing, but this could also be, you know, a hard skill or a soft skill when it comes to something like development or something that you, that you actually love to teach the vocalists that you work with through the company, anything like that. I'd be very curious to hear what you think. Um, As far as working with vocalists, I think one of the best things you can teach them is just um, that their opinions and thoughts are essential to the roles that they're playing in. Mm-hmm. And if they're quiet or shy about it, it'll make for a weaker performance. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that when a vocalist is learning a role, especially a new role, that they're very engaged in the collaboration and that it is an actual collaboration with both the composer, the director, and the, like the stage director and the music director. Yeah. And to not like, I mean, I'm not a vocalist, so I don't really know how it typically works, but, you know, to not be afraid of saying, I think my character would do this, or I'm comfortable doing this, and I'm not comfortable doing that, Mm -hmm. um, because it reads if you are not. And so, I mean, that's, that's a pretty big thing is to just be confident Mm -hmm. and know that, you know, like you were selected for this role. So you're, you're there, you're good enough. And mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure you're more than good enough. Um, and especially if you're a soprano or <laughs> and and just you know, like, don't be afraid to to speak out on on things because it's just gonna make everything better. It's just yeah. gonna make it better. Well, I love how you're pinpointing the value there, which is sometimes younger vocalists get get the impression that they should just be a very blank canvas and that somebody else will put, you know, interpretation or something like that on them. And, and, or they're thinking that that's what the director is going to do. And I just need to be as blank as possible. And you and I both know that, no, you, you need to 
come in with thoughts and opinions, but also be adaptable. So have strong opinions, right? Be thoughtful, think through how, how your character thinks, acts, behaves, all of that stuff, and be ready to offer that up into the situation, but then be adaptable enough. So if somebody says, we really need to go in this direction, do you have any thoughts about that, that you can keep, you can keep going, but it always comes from that place of, of having an opinion, being passionate about your role, about your character, that kind of stuff. Is that, am I getting that Right, yeah, you're saying? definitely, definitely. Cool. I mean, and it's so helpful because nobody can know any everything. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as a composer, it's ridiculously helpful to, um, like, if I wrote something wrong, it was probably a mistake or I didn't know better. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's it's okay to 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 point point it out. I mean, be nice, but like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be rude about it, but just be like. Hey, I wonder if we could talk about this. <laughs> um, on the grant writing side, what? So, um, I know that there's a lot of. I feel like there's a lot of young people who are um, starting organizations, which is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say two things. I feel like there's a huge dependence on grants from mm. individual, from uh, institutions and foundations, and the way a healthy organization should operate is that actually like 60% should come from individuals. Yeah. Can you say that again? (laughs) (laughs) Like, honestly, just say that one more time. (laughs) Wait, really? Yes. I honestly mean that. (laughs) Um, Organizations should not rely on grant funding year to year. It's not a stable um, source of income, although it might seem like that, mm-hmm. institutional um, foundations, like private foundations, like the big ones are like Ford and Mellon, but they can go smaller, like Amphion and Ditson and all those, mm-hmm. like from, you know, whatever. <laughs> they, they are audited every year and they are subject to board to their boards and they will often change their funding priorities. It's very, very common. Mm-hmm. And there's a statistic out there that's like every day one foundation closes and then one opens once a month. Mm -hmm. Foundations are are, um, not a a renewable resource. Right, right. And I mean, in general, like it's this has been the case, like this whole idea of um, where your funds should come from. The individuals are the most stable source of contributed income, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the easy, the easiest way to start to develop your group of donors is to do some sort of crowdfunding, and that's totally mm-hmm. fine as a small organization. Yeah. They should take those people who give five dollars, twenty five dollars, a hundred dollars, maybe five thousand dollars, mm-hmm. and cultivate them mm-hmm. rather than and spend. People need to spend more time doing that than grant writing. And yeah. grants are important and they'll, they'll give you some good money, but they should not be the end all be all. And you shouldn't think of them as the end all be all for your organization. Thank you. Hey there, divas. Real quick thing before we get back to the rest of this episode. Do you love studio class? You can support it now by joining the Sybaritic Camerata on Patreon. It's just at patreon.com slash mezzoenen, M-E-Z-Z-O-I-H-N-E-N. For $10 a month, you can join the listening circle where you get access to bonus episodes, you can make listener requests, and for $20 a month, you can become a Masterclass Scholar. Do you ever wish you could ask our Masterclass episode guests a question? 
here's your chance. As a Masterclass Scholar, you're invited to the recording of the Masterclass episodes, and you get to ask your questions during an exclusive Q&A after the taping. So come on over, check it out, patreon.com slash mezzoenen. And now we're back to the episode. Julia, can you describe a little bit more about cultivation? When we talk about donor cultivation, can you maybe flesh out that idea a little bit more? Sure. So uh, it's like what I literally do professionally. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, During the pandemic, it's a little hard because you can't invite people to anything. You can't Mm -hmm. do in-person meetings. But generally what cultivation is, is so you have someone who you know has either donated to your organization or is interested in your organization or in you as an artist. Mm -hmm. And, um, you want to make sure they feel heard and welcomed and appreciated and thanked, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you might just call them on the phone or you might have a meeting with them just so that they, you know, they're obviously interested. You've, you've determined that already. Mm-hmm. So of course they want to hear from you. Yeah. And um, so you're not asking as this cultivation is not asking them for anything. Cultivation mm-hmm. is just, getting to know them, getting to know what they like and their and what their funding priorities are perhaps, getting to know um, you know how they're interested in your organization like do they like that you do new music? Do you like do they like that they that you support emerging artists? Like what what do they like about you? And ultimately the more you cultivate someone, the more they'll give. Mm-hmm. When you ask mm-hmm. them the next time, they'll give, you know, you'll ask them for more and they'll theoretically give more. And if not, that's okay. You'll just keep, keep on cultivating. Well, and you're really <laughs> building that relationship, right? That, right, that, exactly. That cultivating, kind of, you know, cultivating like a like a garden. You're, you're planting, you're watering, you're giving lots of good sunlight. You know, <laughs> the same idea, I think, can be a little um, intimidating when you're getting started in that process. If you're you're feeling like I don't I don't know how to reach out to these people or feel like I'm gonna bother them but I love the suggestions you know that you're talking about here which is is find out more about them you know why are they supporting your organization what are they interested in and then asking for more information about them so that you can build a real relationship together between you know you professionally in this organization and, and the things that they're interested in, them personally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's work. It's definitely mm-hmm. work, but it's definitely more, um, what's the word? More uh, lucrative, more, it'll yield better results than any grant writing, really. Mm-hmm. But you should also cultivate your foundations if you are grant writing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I think that's what I loved about what you said was, you know, you're not getting rid of grants entirely. You're still going to write your grants. But remember that this larger percentage is actually individual giving or donorship, you know, that kind of understanding. And I, I'm with you that I see, you know, friends and colleagues and, and clients that are early in their organization, you know, their organization is young and, and they think, oh, we just need to get grants. Like that's the only way. And so similarly, I keep, you know, we'll have a conversation of, about that in a coaching or something. And I'm like, so this is definitely the time period where you really wanna be increasing your, you know, your relationships and getting individual donors on board. And like you mentioned about crowdfunding, 
that honestly can start with, you know, here's $5 towards supporting this thing that you're doing and start there. And then you just begin that cultivation process. Definitely. Um, and so I started Fresh Squeeze Opera when I was in business school and I am an entrepreneurship major. I was an entrepreneurship major and I was able to use Fresh Squeeze in my projects and do, you know, break evens, do yeah. um, it just a business plan. Um, oh my gosh. What's the other, what's the other thing? <laughs> I don't remember. Oh my gosh. And I really, really, you're like, you're like SWOT analysis and stuff like that. You're like part of all of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I really strongly recommend anyone who has started a business or hasn't yet and wants to, like, it is a business mm-hmm. and you should write a business plan and you should mm-hmm. learn how to make one and you should, um, oh my gosh. It's there's this report that you make. It's a financial document and it's a feasibility study. That's what it's called. Oh yeah. Feasibility feasibility studies. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of resources on how to do it. You don't have to get an MBA. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I had like, I mean, I had some great professors who were, cause you know, it's really annoying have that one kid in your class who probably shouldn't be getting an MBA and should be getting an MPA. And they're like, <laughs> you're like, what well, my nonprofit? And you're like, well, this is a for-profit situation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I had some great professors who just like went along for the ride with me. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. I think there's, there's a lot to be said for professors that are on your team and, you know, that are interested in what, what you're up to, like what you care about, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, but I, I think, so we, Fresh, we started at the same time as Loft Opera, which was a mm-hmm. company that yeah. is no longer in existence. And I've done a lot of analysis as to, you know, like why we are still around and why they are. And there's a lot of reasons and we, we weren't even doing the same thing because mm-hmm. they did standard repertoire in weird places. Yeah. Um, but a big part of it, like they have huge donors. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. And the big part of um, why they did not, why are they, why they are not still around, I believe, is because they didn't know how to build an organization sustainably and they didn't know how to handle exponential growth. Wow. So, and so under, yeah. And so understanding, you know, how to spend your money and like where to spend your money and how to get your money. Mm-hmm. Um, in a long-term, like five plus year situation is really important, I think, when you're starting. I think that's, yeah, just extremely valuable. Jillian, would you say, because I, I obviously, I'm, this is a leading question because I feel this way, but would you agree with me that in opera, we, we kind of have a hard time talking about money sometimes and it's to our detriment. You know, we just don't, Oh, I think the world has a hard time talking. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I think that I think that there's a I think it's women, and I think that the opera world, especially in um, the smaller opera world, mm-hmm. is very much filled with women, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, but women are traditionally like told not to talk about money, not to ask about salaries, and um, we don't know how to talk about it or negotiate yeah. or many of that jazz. Well, I'm wondering. This brings me to another thing that I tend to ask in in masterclass episodes, which 
Sybaritic Singer, you know, the blog and the blog that the mm -hmm. Studio Class podcast came out of is, is all, we talk a lot about micro actions, right? Just really boiling it down to one thing. And you're going to love this. I always use this example, uh, but, but it's because I, I use the example of writing a grant, like write a grant is like, is not a micro action because <laughs> you don't boil like the, the smallest part of that, which is potentially, you know, write the, write the narrative or finalize the budget or something like that. Like you can break it down even more, but finding that micro action is just the one task that you can complete. It's very clear what it is. It's not multiple tasks within that. It's just the one, right? So micro action idea. I'm wondering if you can talk about a micro action and we're kind of coming from this money conversation. So if it's close to that, that's awesome. If it's not, you know, if you go somewhere else, that's great too. But can you tell me about a micro action that you've used in your career that you think has served you really well? Making to-do lists. Is that a- Yeah, there you go. Can you tell me about your to-do list like process? <laughs> I'm like, I'm very sticky note oriented. And yeah. <laughs> I, I even use like the sticky note app on my work computer because it's a, not an Apple. I love it. Um, and um, just like organizing your brain whenever I do it like in the middle of the day in the morning in the afternoon like whenever um and prior and that helps you prioritize like what needs to get done because you're not gonna like especially with grant writing especially with like writing proposals and um writing an opera like mm -hmm. you're not gonna get everything done in one day so you have to organize what you need to get done right now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and well, that could be like make a doctor's appointment. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I, I love that you said the list thing, because that's actually where this, my, like, you know, where my micro action, like kind of thought process comes from is for many years, I just kept a yellow legal pad and I would set a timer. So I did it kind of when I first got into my day job in the morning, I would set a timer for 10 minutes and I would just fill that legal pad sheet with micro actions, like I had to break it down to myself, like what's the smallest version of this. So it was like, you know, write a thank you note was like one of them. Also make a doctor's appointment was another one, you know, and, and I would do it holistically across my life. So I, so that I didn't kind of silo things and have, here's a to-do list for singing. Here's a to-do list for my day job. Here's a to-do list for being, you know, a, a human person that has friends and significant other and you know, like whatever. And, um, and so that's where this comes from. For me, I would cross them off, you know, as I did them on that day, but then that would also just kind of, the page would get flipped and I would start over. So nothing mm -hmm. got carried over, which was an important yeah. part for me. Sometimes other people can, can get along better by c carrying things over, but that's not a system that works well <laughs> for me. So I love that you said lists, you know, because that is a micro action unto itself, which is coalesce the your tasks and then take a look and prioritize yeah 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 I'm also like I mean obviously kind of obsessed with money yeah I mean, not, <laughs> not in that I'm a greedy person or anything but in that like I just enjoy thinking about it yeah <laughs> yeah and so another microtransaction I really enjoy is like I am a very strict budgeter and like Good. and like being you know looking, checking in with my bank account 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and I used to, I, I'm in the process of buying a house. So I cleared out my, um, I had a, a portfolio of stocks and I cleared it out. Yeah. <laughs> but I used to, you know, like check that every day. Yes, but you're getting ready for the house. This I is know. big. This is like, <laughs> I, I, do you have any suggestions? Like if somebody is not, not very into budgeting so far, but they want to get, get better at it or bring it into their life. Do you have anything that you would point them towards? Um, I mean, honestly, I would just keep it really simple and it takes a lot of trial and error at yeah. first, mm-hmm. but you know, you figure out the, I had a lot of credit card debt. I paid off like $14,000 of credit card debt. In two Congratulations years. for paying that off. Thank you. I want to get a tattoo yeah. of something to commemorate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and by the so like my whole next project that I'm working on is centered around debt and like, incredible about how every it's one of the most connecting things every human has debt but it's so stigmatized and it's especially in the classical music world it's like required and it's very dumb um and so uh what was I saying oh so like you figure out how much I mean based on your your paycheck comes in you figure out how much you have to pay to to essentials like your um I don't know if you have a car or if you have um when, like your living situation yeah like rent costs. oh yeah yeah all and then you figure stuff. out how much you think you'll need to get to the next paycheck so my minimum is 550 dollars mm-hmm. for two weeks like yeah. I you know it's for food or like if I want to buy some clothes or whatever and I usually won't spend it all and then everything else goes into like savings or you know used to go toward my debt mm-hmm. um but it doesn't like I know there's a lot of these spreadsheets and stuff. And I think that if you're if you're, you know, detail oriented and you can handle that, that's fantastic. That's how I started. But you did, it can be really simple, too, and really like unproblematic. Right. And yeah, so yeah. if even if you're not a detail oriented person, I still think that budgeting is important. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's. And like you said, so many of us in this field have, you know, have educational debt, uh, have, have had debt for musical reasons or non-musical reasons. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it, it exists. It's a thing you have to take care of it. You know, don't avoid taking care of that situation because, you know, you, one of the things that comes up for me is, you know, when I talk to students is, is about being thoughtful about any debt that they, they take on. There's, you know, debt that helps you like increase your earning power and things like that in life. Mm-hmm. But being aware of, will this help me? And can I pay it off in a, in a time period in which it's not going to prevent me from doing the things that I want to do? Those were a couple of the, the debt situations that I bumped into where maybe uh, I think I, I, had debt for for a summer festival even like that prevented me for a certain amount of time from being able to take on you know experiences musical experiences because I was like well you know every every other hour is is at a job or something like that because I need to pay off an experience rather than being open to new experiences and that doesn't mean don't do it it just means be aware of what you're getting into and make those choices yeah um I would say for student debt 
um, I honestly don't worry about it. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so first, so first of all, there's a thing that I'm doing because I do have a full-time job in nonprofits called the public student loan forgiveness program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, if you work it for 10 years in the public, in the public sector, either for a nonprofit or for a school, they'll forgive your debt theoretically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I am paying what's called an, uh, what is it? Income driven payment. Mm -hmm. So it's like the lowest amount I could ever pay, which is great. Right. Except for right now, none of us have to pay anything. Which exactly. <laughs> but also in the, um, Obamacare, when Obamacare passed, they also passed a bill saying that after 25 years of student debt, if it's a federal, if it's a federal mm -hmm. loan, it'll get forgiven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also think student debt is in general just bullshit and <laughs> yeah I mean my whole attitude toward toward debt and like oh my gosh like have you ever talked to I'm like 100% into the generational war <laughs> to a boomer about credit card debt they, oh think it's, they think it's like the worst thing you could ever have and yeah it's right. really bad and you'll dig yourself into a hole but it doesn't make you a bad person to have credit mm -hmm. card debt people exactly. do Yes. And like, they'll just, they'll be like, oh no. It's like almost as bad as, I don't know, like being gay in the 1900s. Like, <laughs> did you hear, hear that? Oh, my card debt? Oh, and sorry. And the other quick thing about student loan debt is when I was in the process of like getting approved for a mortgage for a lot yeah. of money, they did not give a shit about how much debt I had See? in student loans. And mm -hmm. they didn't. Yeah, and like when I'm filling out my board package, they're like, actually, this is kind of an asset because it shows that you went to college or something. And I'm like, okay, everybody. You're, <laughs> you're like, cool, I'll yeah. take it. So but really, I think that's that's it, though, is just making sure that what you're taking into your life is is helping you get, you know, get to the next stage without preventing you from taking advantage of it, you know, when you're there. Those are the kinds of things that, and then, like you said, just budgeting for things and being, and being unafraid of money questions mm -hmm. because there's so yeah. much information out there. So ask everyone yeah. what to get paid. Ask yes. <laughs> yes. And like, you know, ask people, ask questions about how to manage money, no matter like what that number is in your bank account, ask about how to manage things so that you're able to, you know, grow those assets or be aware of it, know what to do with it as especially, sorry, people on this podcast have heard me go on and on about making sure that you're like, you know, financially healthy about stuff. So, so you just opened up an area that I'm like, yes, I do want them to know about oh, this. I, I love talking about money. <laughs> if your company offers you some kind of 401k or 403b with matching, it is the best investment you will ever get on yes. any investment you will make. Anything. Yeah. So take advantage of that. Exactly. Well, um, I, that's one of the things about having day jobs too early in your career. Can we come back to that for just a second, which is because so many of us work in multiple facets, you know, so many of us have either day jobs or different, you know, multiple income streams, that kind of thing that I early in my career, I thought, you know, oh, I can't, I think, well, I obviously had a day job, so it didn't change me all that much, but like, I, I was under the impression at some point that I had to be available all the time for rehearsals and things like that. So that's why you couldn't have a day oh, job, I oh, think was some sort of like random thought process that I had. And 
sure there's like two thoughts I have on that first of all yeah I don't like the term day job because it does imply some kind of negative connotation to it right right job I love I work at the Rubin Museum yeah the environment is amazing my colleagues are amazing I love it I love everything I do I love my composition work I love my fresh squeeze work and I love my my job at the Rubin exactly um and also um drawing lines as to your availability like not just like like you should make time for yourself. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, no, you, you shouldn't take a day. You shouldn't like not take a day job because you want to be available all the time, but you also shouldn't take a gig. That's like making you need to be available all the time because you should have a life and be able to like cook and eat and like spend exactly. time with significant other and play with your cats or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so you can see, Just some of that kind of erroneous thinking that shows up, you know, just examining what are some of these beliefs that I have about how this industry works that may or may not be the case. And that was just one that showed up for me kind of early on was, you know, being available in certain ways. But I realized that because we we all work with these different like income streams, however we make money, that by and large rehearsals are happening at times that are like that work with that schedule that I was having. And so I was like, oh, this is not a problem. And, and I just like to pass that along to people so that they can put themselves in situations in which they're using their skills, they are, they are able to generate income or, you know, and because you had mentioned corporate, like they're matching, um, either, you know, retirement account matching and that, that sort of thing. So that it, you know, that you Health, can healthcare. Yeah. Like healthcare is huge. Putting yourself into situations where you have access to those things can really be beneficial. It can be a really uh, useful part of, of your life. So I mean, so I just I, don't want people to negate that because they're in a singing career or something. Yeah. And again, I'm not a singer. And so I've never been like, I, I have played as a bassoonist in for organizations but like, and I guess in those situations, they never asked me what my availability was, but I, I would never create a schedule without asking my singers availabilities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because that's, you hire these people. So you want to work with them. So why mm-hmm. would you be like, okay, only on Tuesday night? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't, make it, you can't make it, but it's like, but you just went through the whole process of hiring me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and also, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm just cramming a bunch of stuff in when um it is like as as a producer i am trying to make the most out of my money that i have for my company mm-hmm. i will offer vocalists what i think is a fair price and and we do offer i think we do um significantly well with how much we pay our vocalists yeah I mean, it's not the highest but certainly not the lowest mm-hmm. um but you should always um, ask for more. There's mm-hmm. always room for more. And we kind of, I kind of anticipate people asking for more. Can you give a, if somebody hasn't done this, can you give an example of a positive negotiating experience that you, you had, you know, as, as on the administrative side of the company where somebody negotiated and either if it, if, they did negotiate for a higher or you kept it at the same. Can you talk about a positive experience of that? Sure. I mean, 
oftentimes I'll be like, hey, uh, and I'll send them like the whole thing and like, mm-hmm. you know, the whole description. I won't send them a contract until we've finished negotiating, but I'll be like, blah, blah, this is great. This is the part, blah, blah, blah. We can offer you, you know, like a thousand bucks. And they'll be like, 1500 And I'll be like, what about 13 and yeah. like, It's really that simple. And there's no negative feelings. It's right. just, it's but really not personal it. to do it. Yeah. Is <laughs> I just want to take demystify a little bit of that saying, you know, writing back to something and saying, what about this, this number? And, and it's okay that, that on your side, you're not going, how dare they, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're like, okay, you know? Yeah, no. I mean, sometimes that'll happen because there are some opera companies that are, you know, not great. Yeah. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but in that case, you know, if you really want to work with them, you can always go back to the original. That's not a problem. Yep. Um, there's have been instances where people have asked for more and we were unable to give them more. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we had to move on with a different person or sometimes we had to, or sometimes they agree to the price. That's totally cool too. If you're like, yeah. this isn't enough for my time. Yep. That's, that's perfectly fine. There's no hard feelings. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, if anything, it's like, oh, God damn, I wish I had more money, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, so when I negotiated my personal salary, you know, I, I did justify it and you don't, I don't think you have to, but I said, you know, I, I'll be putting a lot into this job and I think that I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, do, I'll do, I'm, I'm putting everything into this and, um, I think this is a fair Mm -hmm. salary. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the worst they can say is no. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Exactly. And from the other side, or if you're the one that's negotiating, then you just say like, come to the place where you're going to put it out there, but you're not, if they say no, then you go, okay, bummer. You know, (laughs) you just got to do the process. So Jillian, I'm going to ask you one more question, you know, before we kind of start to wrap up our, our time together. And I believe deeply in the power of curiosity. And so when I, you know, when I work with clients, when I work with students and, and we talk about, you know, what questions are inspiring you right now, And that's what I'm going to ask you as, as we come to the end of our time here, what, what are you deeply curious about right now? What questions are inspiring you? Um, (laughs) I'm so one thing I'm super into right now, this is probably not what you're looking for. (laughs) It could be. (laughs) I just found out that all of survivor is on Hulu and I I started episode one, season one. And it is so good and it holds up so well. Really? It's so good. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, that's on my mind. I guess, so for me, um, I'm a very wound up person and I'm very motivated and, you know, it's not everyone can do a billion things and I really understand that and I, I feel like I do a lot. Um, and so one of my my things that I've I've been very curious about is um, and I've been learning a lot about Buddhism and meditation because I've been working at the Ruben Museum for about a year now and really learning a lot about reading a lot of books and learning a lot about um, the practices that and traditions that people do. And I've been curious as to how, um, like, what is calm in people's heads? Like, what mm. makes 
brings people to a calm space and what brings me to a calm space and what, um, you know, how does one achieve like an, a sense of emptiness and a sense of um, nothing? Because for me, that I'm the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been something... I just finished reading The Art of Solitude by Stephen Batchelor, which is a very, really interesting book yeah. um, that I recommend to people. Great. Um, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you so much for sharing <laughs> that with me. The, I'm going to think about that too, because, you know, what is, what it, I like how you phrased that too, like what is calm in your head? Mm-hmm. Like where, where do you go or what is that, what is that thought or idea? you know, or the absence of it. um, Jenny Beck, who, uh, who I love and I fresh squeeze wants to do some kind of, she does these sonic meditations that are fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And we're, I think we're going to host one, although I kind of dropped the ball and I need to connect with her on that. (laughs) Well, Um, keep me posted when you do and I'll share it. (laughs) But that's, it's just like focusing on a single, well, sometimes she does there's different iterations of it but it's like focusing on a single sound in your environment mm-hmm. and it really like that kind of focus really I think drives calm for me I love um that. and her music is also kind of meditative and, and likewise check it out yeah I totally will <laughs> well Jillian where can where can we find you on the interwebs you know where would you like people to go to check out yeah. what you're about I mean check out fresh squeezed opera it's just freshqueezeopera.com. Um, especially because we also hold open auditions. And if there's vocalists listening, I'd love to hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Vocalists do that. <laughs> um, I also have a personal website that's really bad. Really bad. <laughs> this is jillianflexner.com. <laughs> you don't have to go there. <laughs> I like how you're just calling yourself out. You're like, here's where it is. It's not great. (laughs) (laughs) I spent like maybe 30 cents on it. (laughs) That's amazing. Okay. Well, freshsqueezeopera.com and then jillianflexner.com if you want to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much, Jillian. This is such a pleasure. I always love talking to you and I hope we'll get to do it again soon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this Masterclass episode on Studio Class. Hey, before you go, do you have a second? Will you take a screenshot of this episode and share it to Instagram with your takeaways? You can tag me there, at Mezzoinen. That's M-E-Z-Z-O-I-H-N-E-N. It makes a huge difference when you share this podcast with your friends. Or even strangers, really. So, with that in mind, I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening!